Welcome to or welcome back to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton and I'm the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. Now as you listen to this or any of the other episodes, past, present, or future of the Journey Through Life podcast and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. Acting on that thought can and will bring blessings and joy to you and that person that comes to mind. I'm really excited to continue this very special to me 12-week series on the Journey Through Life podcast. The series is called Journey in Recovery. I have interviewed many different people from lots of locations and many different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot for the next several weeks. Whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives, and many of those weaknesses are something that no one but ourselves knows about, and try as we wish, we have not been able to move past them. I have experienced that learning of and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be beneficial to any person who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives, that doing so will help them move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. This can include full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, including prescription medications, something as dire as cutting or eating disorders, or something seemingly insignificant, but just as gripping as social media, video games. This week, we will once again have two episodes covering the same step. The second episode will include Angie, a lustaholic, sharing her experience, strength, and hope in her path of addiction and recovery. In this conversation, Angie talks tactfully, but completely honestly, about the path of destruction that she had unknowingly left in her wake after some traumatic experiences in her childhood. She shares of her awakening to her own situation and the journey to make things right with herself, with God, and with her fellow humans, not the least of which her family. This is a powerful conversation that may open the eyes to some of our listeners. Lust, sex, and other related addictions are not a men-only issue. And I am grateful that this stigma is being broken down, as it is a positive thing for all people to start to remove the stigma of all addictions, including sexual addiction. If this is your first episode of this series, or of this podcast as a whole, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all of the previous episodes in this Journey in Recovery series. They started on January 6th, I believe, of 2020. There are 12 steps, and they are in a prescribed order for a reason. So whether you do that now, or after you listen to this episode, I heartily invite you to go and listen to the others, and then continue with steps 10 through 12 or 9 through 12 over the next several weeks. Step 8 reads, made a list of all persons we had harmed, and become willing to make amends to them. In this and other conversations, you may be introduced to concepts that you have never before considered, or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your entire life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true to these people sharing them. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head, then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back, hit the road, work out, do yard work or housework or whatever you do while listening to podcasts, and be ready to learn and feel 
and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go with Angie. Okay, so through the magic of the internet, I'm sitting here with Angie. Angie, why don't you introduce yourself as you would in a, in a meeting in a room somewhere, and then tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, my name's Angie. I am a grateful recovering sexaholic in Missouri, and I've been sober since March 16, 2015. Well, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Angie. So you're in Missouri. You're a recovering sexaholic. Um, give us a little bit of your background in life where maybe your addictive behavior started, but you know, at the time you probably didn't think of them as, as such and didn't recognize that, but tell me a little history behind the addiction here. So, um, I've had the opportunity to share my story. And so by doing so, you know, I've gone back and and through the process of working the steps and a lot of therapy and treatment, even for myself, I went back to find out where all this craziness and madness really started. Um, I've gone back to my earliest memory of age four. I always knew my mother's family had a lot in the family tree, but until I really started getting into my recovery and I had this huge desire to find out how I ended up in these rooms, did I really start looking at it from a different perspective? I remember at age four being groomed um, by an older cousin. At that point in time, you know, I felt special and I felt love um, from this individual. I didn't know at the time that that was just the beginning stages of. Uh, you know, a trust between him and I, a relationship between him and I. I do know that in kindergarten, I had a strong desire to be lusted after. Hmm. Um, around age five, I can remember my uncle, actually, who was a very big part of my family tree. Um, he came to my kindergarten class as a clown and took um, photos of everyone hmm. just kind of like for a fun thing but I remember the emphasis I put on myself and that my mother put on me to dress up look pretty look cute be right and it was an imaginary photo it wasn't even a real photo huh. and so I look at that as the desire to be lusted after at age five but at age five, that is definitely not the way you verbalized it in your head. You just thought, I want boys to think I'm cute. Am I, am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, and not even boys, and I mean girls, adults, anyone, because I learned later in my life that I fed off of any type of uh, compliment hmm. that I could get no matter where it came from. It hmm. didn't matter. The source was still a lust hit for me. Hmm. How did things develop from there? Okay. So fast forward to about, I, I, I can't remember if it was age 10 or 12, but the actual uh, sexual abuse began with my uh, cousin at that time. Let's say I was 10. He's 16 years older, so he would have been 26. Wow. He was married. He had children. Um, we had always had a close relationship. 
And that's exactly all I thought it was. I thought he loved me and that I was special because that's what he told me. Mm. I mean, I had no reason to even look at it as abuse. So that's kind of when the whole thing started and continued, believe it or not, well into my 20s when I was married. Mm. Wow. And so what, what types of things did you learn as you look back at that from those experiences and what, how, how did that affect other relationships in your life? Well, I learned, uh, I absolutely learned I had absolutely no boundaries. Mm. Um, the thing that I learned was lust was more powerful than anything I'd ever experienced in my life. Um, I had a total confusion between what lust and love was. I didn't, I didn't know I was a love cripple. I thought that lust was love. The relationships in my life, you know, I didn't know at that time I was an addict. I didn't know that I was a split person being my addict self and I didn't even know who my authentic self was because I had lived in addiction and lost, you know, all of my days that I can even remember. Hmm. And so looking at that and accepting and how it affected every every relationship was a false relationship Hmm. because I didn't know what real looked like. So what did a, a relationship look like to you before this realization of um, a difference between lust versus love? You know, I was sitting in a meeting once and we were reading from the white book and I realized for the first time that I was a perpetrator too. I became the abuser, Hmm. meaning I just took from people what I wanted. I thought that I was this loving, kind, giving person, but in reality, I was a pleaser and a manipulator to get what I needed from that person, male or female. It didn't matter. I would seek people that I knew that I could get a connection with at some sort of emotional level. Mm. When was the first time you basically um, had this realization of, I think there's something wrong here. I think I might have a problem with relationships and, and how I see them. You know what? I never had a problem. (laughs) It was everybody else. And that was like the biggest insight even today that I am so thankful to own because I was a really sick person. I didn't, I didn't know it. I didn't know, I I was able to blame and criticize everyone in my world for everything that was wrong. I had no part in it. And um, I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to uh, keep conflict at bay. Uh, I assumed what people wanted. So I would do what I thought they wanted when in turn they didn't even ask me. I mean, it was just, my world was completely backward and i learned about sexaholism in a therapy session my husband and i were on our third therapist um 
I had just been discovered as um, acting out outside my marriage. Um, I was caught. And we ended up in our third therapist, only by the grace of God, um, who was a Catholic Christian as we are. She was a 12-stepper herself as we are. Hmm. And she'd been in therapy business for 30 years. And she listened to my timeline. And one day she said to me, she goes, you're a sexaholic. And I mean, that whole deer in the headlight look was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. At that point in time, I didn't even know anyone really in AA. I didn't even know about 12 steps, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I may have heard it in a movie or seen a group in a movie saying, hello, my name is, you know, and I'm a whatever. Right. But it wasn't a reality to me until she called me out and said, look, I think this is what's going on. So when she said, Angie, you're a sexaholic, I mean, you mentioned kind of what the emotions were, but but kind of the deer in the headlights. Now let's let's go forward over a, a day or two later. What are some of the things that are going through your head as you as you're hearing that echo in your mind? I'm sure you're a sexaholic. How are how are you dealing with that, and what are your thoughts as you're thinking about that? Well, still being a really sick and selfish person. I was thinking this may be my gold card to save my marriage. Because, mm. I mean, we were like completely devastated and it was ugly and it was painful. And um, it turned out to be the best time of my life. But at that point in time, it was definitely the worst time of my life so much fear and so I really don't remember I I would probably say I was very confused but I also felt a great sense of relief to think okay maybe maybe I'm not a bad person maybe maybe there's more to this than I know Hmm. you know in recovery I know you know an addict or myself I'm not a bad person I'm a sick person Hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, you know, you had lived your life not thinking you had a problem, that the problem was everybody else's. So basically the way I interpret that as you looked at it kind of as I'm a victim of everybody else's stupidity. Is that, is that kind of how you perceived that at the time or? I was a victim all the way around. I don't know if I would think stupidity. I don't know. Hmm. Um, I would just, I mean, I was self-seeking in everything, self-pity, self-loathing, self-will. I didn't even know I was a prideful person until Mm. I got into recovery because I thought I was right. I really did. I was convinced that it was everybody else, especially my husband. I mean, I had the most resentment towards him. Um, I later learned that I was resentful towards my mother. Mm. I didn't even know that because I was such a caretaker and taking care of everybody's feelings that, I mean, that was just part of my sickness. You know, I'm a codependent and I'm a double winner in, in lots of programs, but 
I would have never thought it was me. I really didn't have a clue it was me. Hmm. And and I think that's a very common realization that a lot of um, addicts, when they kind of come to, have. Holy cow! I am a mess. I thought everyone else was a mess and making my life miserable, but really it's me that's swinging that bat and hitting myself in the head with it, you know? And that's a, that's a rude awakening for pretty much everybody, right? Oh my gosh. So much acceptance. I mean, you know, my therapist would say, you know, everything that I believed is now opposite. Hmm. I called it opposite land. You know, she would constantly say, Angie, this is like riding a bicycle backwards. Angie, this is like walking up an escalator backwards every day. She said, your sky was once blue and now it's all red. It's not even the same color as you thought it was. So it was a lot of work to change my point of view and to see my part in this. And like I said, it was completely backwards to anything that I ever knew. Hmm. Now you mentioned earlier, and and this is, you know, anonymity and 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 everything here, but you mentioned that both you and your husband are 12 steppers, as was your therapist. Are you able or willing to share what your husband is, what his 12 step program is? Of course. He helps people all across the world as we both do now. He is a proud member of Essanon, as he would introduce himself. Awesome. He too is a double winner like me. Um, not not as not as in SA, but definitely full on Essanon. He thankfully, our story just keeps developing, and and we've said this in talks. You know, broken people attract broken people. I would have not been attracted to someone healthy at age 19. I wouldn't have even known what that looks like. Mm. Today, I would run for the hills before I, I mean, I can almost tell instantly if I'm talking to someone that's, I, we call it at our house, they've got something cooking. They got something cooking. And it's like, I'm not going to take their inventory, but I know when I start feeling something, a feeling, a strong feeling, a gut feeling, or my boundaries are being violated, there's a problem. Mm. And we just kind of look at that as, wow, that person's really toxic. So when you, and, and we'll get into what our conversation is going to be about step eight here in a minute, but I want to, I want to sit on this for just a minute because what you hit on there, you said, I don't want to take anybody else's inventory, but you see, you sense when there's something cooking going on. So when you come come across somebody where there's something cooking, and you recognize, hey, this person may need some help or assistance. What t- do you take any sort of actions to invite them to recognize that, or do you just kind of say, hey, this person's toxic right now. We need to step away for it a little bit. How do you approach that? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I know early in recovery, um, we were so anxious to help. You know. And my therapist, which means she's awesome, I can't even explain how she saved my life, but, you know, she explained the world and even our home as the laboratory. And so we were constantly getting to practice our new tools and program, our boundaries. As far as other people, if 
a person is very egocentric and their narcissism and their pride is just like spewing then there's there's no no there's not even a crack in the door mm -hmm. it's all i can do is pray for that person i can recognize them as a sick person but take care of myself immediately i can take care of myself by if i have to stay in that situation for a little bit you know i can be quiet i can see i've been able i call it like a gift of transparency mm. because i can see through their stuff i would have never done that before i would have stood there and took it all in i would have reacted i would have felt miserable i mean i would have been just as sick or sicker when i got through the conversation if a person shows a little interest then you know i might just share a little experience and see how they choose if they're going to react or if they're going to respond mm -hmm. i have learned in my short experience with this that you know if they're truly interested then they will ask me um, it was really hard for my husband at the beginning being such a controlling person that he wanted to just like say everything to everybody and just try and fix them right there on the spot because that's his stuff. He wants, I'm going to fix this. And I'd be in the wings just listening, thinking, oh gosh, this is just not going to go very well. But he had to learn that on his own. And I had to learn it on my own as well, especially within our family. We have four sons and we've been talking recovery for almost five years and shared this journey with them. Mm. They're my oldest is 25 now. So they all reap everything that we sowed mm. as ad addict parents. I mean, I can't even tell you what behaviors are stronger in some of them because it's such a combination between my husband <laughs> sometimes it's like well that's definitely their dad coming out right now or oh wow that sounds just like me <laughs> so as you share these things with them and the the insights that you've gained in the journey that you are you and your husband are walking are they applying those lessons into their own lives are they saying ah that's not me i'm grateful my parents are getting help but i don't need to worry about it how what is their reactions you know what we've had so many blessings in our home i can't even tell you all of them um they knew we were in therapy um and after all of the discovery we went through all of the uh, defining of my behaviors i went to treatment and as soon as i got home um and while i was gone most importantly and how this really ties into step eight is you know the harm that i caused mm. and so i felt the need to give some type of amends when i got home immediately i i didn't even have a sponsor i didn't really even know the steps I was still in my disease, but I knew that for my own self, I needed to say, you know, some, some sort of sorry at the beginning. And because I wanted recovery more than anything, 
I just kept talking recovery in our home, whether the kids wanted to hear it or not. Right. And they were all young adults and they were all just silently dying in their stuff, just like I was. I mean, our family was dead. It was mm-hmm. dead. I mean, it really was dead compared to where we are now. And so if I say too much, they'll tell me. But for the most part, when they saw changes, positive changes in me and positive changes in their dad, they were all on board. They they literally want what we have now. What a blessing. Now, willingness sometimes is not always present because they still <laughs> are young. Right. But for the most part, they're, they'll listen and... Um, thankful for that oh that's that's a huge blessing what a blessing thanks for sharing that before we get into step eight i have one more little thing i want to hit on that you brought up you went into therapy you went into treatment and when you got back you said i didn't have a sponsor i wasn't working the steps had you attended a 12-step meeting at that point um when you got back from from treatment yet well you know it's really interesting because when we were when I was at treatment, every night we were required to go to a meeting. Okay. So I went to a lot of AA meetings. I went to some codependency meetings. And at that point in time, the only uh, meeting they had for sex addiction was, I believe it was SLAA. Okay. So it was a different branch of 12-step. And so when I got home, I mean, I had been to, I was gone for 45 days, so I'd roughly been to at least 45 meetings. Right. Still didn't have a clue what was going on. Ironically, when I got home, because my husband was, you know, so determined to fix me still, <laughs> he had an S an, uh, a meeting planned for us to go to immediately where he could go to Estenon and I could go to SA. He had um, a regional retreat lined up for us that for both. He had an international convention lined up i mean wow <laughs> you want a planner he's a great planner i mean he just planned everything and it was great because i needed a sponsor and my therapist said angie you have to have a female and you have to have a sponsor with at least five years of sobriety okay i don't know so the meetings that i've been to were all men hmm. And I'm like, where am I ever going to find a female sponsor? So long story short, I did the other phone meetings because of where we live. We live an hour plus from any type of face-to-face meeting. And I did a lot of phone meetings. I was told to do a 90 and 90, which... Um, 90 meetings in 90 days, correct? Yes, 90 meetings in 90 days, which I recommend to my sponsee. Anyway. We went to Chicago for international. I was still not officially part of SA because I hadn't made a decision. Um, I did have a sponsor. I guess I did. Yeah, I did in the other program. And in that program, you could define your own boundaries. Hmm. And I know now and I knew then that it would be way too easy to manipulate my own boundaries. I mm-hmm. mean, I've done that my whole life. And after I went to convention, I wanted what these people had. I saw people with 20 years of sobriety, that they were happy. Like, they were, like, really happy people. And I'm like, 
wow, this, this, this is amazing. You know, I mean, I was just listening to story after story after story. So I joined SA at that point and I got, I found a sponsor there and she's still my sponsor. She lives in a different state. Hmm. She's, she's helped me immensely. What was your, I mean, since you attended those meetings kind of mandatorily when you were in treatment, I wonder if the first meeting for you was as scary as it is for a lot of others, but tell me a little bit about what you remember about the first meeting you went into. Okay. So I'm a lustaholic. Mm-hmm. I went into treatment as a full-blown lustaholic. My chemicals in my brain were still a 10. And so I really didn't have fear of anything because I was still living in my disease. Mm-hmm. I saw it as an opportunity to connect, meet people. You know, that's just being honest. I really didn't have a fear. And honestly, even when I got back home to walk into a room of 20 men, didn't bother me at all. I was mm. more comfortable in a group of men than I was. Now, if you'd have put me in a room with 20 women, I would have been terrified. Mm. But because I was still so sick, I probably, I mean, I looked at it as a connection. That's how I looked at it. Mm. And it's a connection that maybe you could manipulate or make go the way you wanted it for your own self-serving. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, to be completely honest, yeah, to feel comfortable, to, you know, I, I learned so many ways to survive my life through using lust, that that would have just been another form of survival, knowing that I'm going into a situation, but knowing also because fear was my number one character defect. I mean, that's mm. what fueled everything in my life. And so if I had to walk into a scary situation, which that would have been, but I masked it with the lust to serve me, to feel comfortable, and to eventually gain recovery, but initially definitely using. Mm. I resonate with that. Okay, so let's start getting into step eight here. So I've heard people say that uh, steps four and five are a way to get right with myself, to start seeing myself for who I really am. Steps six and seven are to get right with God, to understand my character weakness, to, to be willing to give them up to him and and then be willing to follow him and have him take those things away. And, and steps eight and nine are to get right with my fellow human beings all around me. And step eight reads, made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them. So tell me about your experience leading into step eight and why step eight, why, why it's a, an important step in your own story. You know, I have to be honest, when I was asked to do this interview, I thought, oh my gosh, step eight, that's not a big deal. Hmm. You know, out of all the 12, it's like, okay, I'm this, I make a list, you know, but then the beauty of um, sharing my story, and I've had this experience before, is that I get to learn something. And so I really went back and started thinking about step eight and really what that looked like to me and also the work that I have yet to do for step eight. Hmm. When I first started my steps, the idea of making amends going on to step nine, I'm jumping forward a little mm-hmm. bit, 
was absolutely terrifying. I haven't met anyone yet in programs that they're not scared to death of step four or step nine. Mm-hmm. So, but I thought, you know, making a list will, and after working the other steps, you know, it wasn't hard to make that list. And I just wrote down anyone and everyone. And then when it got down to it and I learned more, you know, I went back and revised it to the ones that I felt I caused harm to. Yeah. So, so the making of the list is definitely um, one part of it. And the, the second part to me that for me is the hard part of step eight and became willing to make amends to them all. You know, that's, that's the tough part. And I think that's where some people get tripped up and like, well, I've got this list of people that I've done harms to, but I sure as heck am not willing to make amends with this person. That person harmed me way more than I harmed them. Do you have any, any um, experiences with something like that and how maybe you overcame it or are working on overcome that, you know, resentment towards that one person maybe? You know, thankfully where I'm at today is I know that that person is a sick person. So I can you know, pull out the big book and pray for that person, which I have. You know, they say, pray for that person, everything that you want for yourself. Now, rewind, let's say, a year or two ago, whenever I was thinking about doing all this and was working on it. It is a big deal. It is a really big deal to think about all the harm that I feel was caused to me, but yet it's going to give me freedom from guilt and shame and any kind of bondage to be able to go to another person and I think the thing that really helped me was with my sponsor you know she was like Angie she says you know this is not about listing everything that you did wrong you don't go into detail what's important here is this is for you This is a cleansing for you. And this is to allow yourself to say, basically, I was wrong. And when I started breaking down what I needed to do at that level, then it wasn't as scary. And I have a couple of experiences. One I made an amends to. He was on my list. This thing had haunted me since I was a freshman in high school. This four years ago, you know, a long time ago. <laughs> and I would see this person every now and then because I live in the same community. And every time in my back of my mind, I kept thinking the harm that I caused that person. So I was just new in program and I saw him and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I, I know it's going to, you know, I'm, I don't have time to even talk to my sponsor about this. It was like an impulse thing. Mm. And, you know, I didn't do it, and there is no perfect, I know that, but, and I went way into too much explanation because I didn't know that I was just to say, you know, I was wrong, I would like to make an amend, will you accept my, you know, type of amends and making that. And so, at first, he was like, oh, it's okay, and mm-hmm. he just laughed it off, I mean, we were kids. Mm-hmm. But then the more we talked about it, the more he got into depth about what really happened from that situation. And so 
for me, it was a full cleansing. It was, it turned out, you know, I full believe that, you know, nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And so I had the opportunity to do that. And I, I feel that that was a blessing. I have tried to make an amend while someone was ambushing me and that did not go well at all. Mm. And I learned from that, that she is one of those toxic people. She's very sick. And so I learned from that, that there is no way I can make an amends to her in any form other than the form of prayer until she either seeks help herself, gets in recovery because it was all still my fault. And I, and honestly, I didn't even get any feast from it all. I mean, it just, I, this was like two years ago this spring and it was just, it was not a good thing. And mm. it kind of happened. It wasn't prepared, but I was back in a corner and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to make a man's will. <laughs> you know, and my therapist would say, you know, Angie, something about making amends and putting people on your list. I cannot have an expectation. I can't have an expectation that number one, that they're going to listen, that they're going to hear me, mm. that they're going to even accept what I have to say. So in those cases, that's causing more harm. Right. My wife has a, a saying that is basically scripture now in our house. <laughs> Expectations are nothing more than predetermined resentments. Amen. So uh, <laughs> going into anything with an expectation of how this person's going to react or respond or, or fulfill whatever my expectations are, I'm always going to walk away disappointed or with, with something in that disappointment brings resentment into my life. And if I set the expectation, that resentment is not that person's fault who fell short of my expectation. It's mine for setting the unrealistic expectation. So I love that. You know, we, we have a thing around here when I'm disturbed, it's me. That's how I roll now. And mm. it's given me more freedom probably than anything else. Well, it'd be in my top five of this program, the things that I've been given. And, you know, something else I wanted to touch on with step eight, if it's okay, is that Absolutely. originally I didn't put myself on the list. And so when I realized I was going to be talking about step eight, I've had some real insightful looks at why my name needs to be on it, the harm that I caused me. So what was that experience like to one, put your name on that list and two, how did you go about making amends with yourself? Well, to be honest, I think that's going to be kind of a lifelong process because I have new awarenesses, you know, I love vision for you and it says, you know, God will divulge more to you and to us when we're ready. Mm -hmm. And that has been my case all along. I didn't know that at the beginning. How did it feel? I, oof, being a shame-based person my whole life and working on shame, I mean, I, it probably took me two years to work through all the shame I had. It still is very humbling. It's a very humbling feeling to put my name on the list. Still a lot of emotion around it the ways in which I need to make amends to myself or to look back 
would be a lot of actually my dependency uh, behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, having absolutely no boundaries. Mm. I had no boundaries. I wasn't raised with boundaries. I cried in my therapy when my, my therapist said, Angie, you need boundaries. And I'm like, why do I need boundaries? If everybody else would just do what they're supposed to do, <laughs> why do I need any boundaries? That's been one of my greatest gifts. You know, saying yes to things when I really said meant no. Just, I actually wrote down some things. Yeah. Avoiding people's emotions, especially if they were angry or me re- reacting and not responding. I mean, that's extremely harmful. I had no idea what self-care looked like, and I'm still working on it. Hmm. You know, um, living in fear all my life, afraid of to speak up, afraid to, to do anything. I knew how to control through manipulation and pleasing, but I didn't know what it meant to be able to say what I needed. Because hmm. those are harmful behaviors to me and to my family. You know, just stuffing my feelings. Hmm. I was frozen for my entire life. Frozen. You know, the whole fight or flight or freeze. I was frozen. Completely. So those those are the things that I'm working on. And I, and I am a lot better. I do take care of myself a lot better emotionally. I strive for emotional sobriety and if I'm not in emotional sobriety then I'm causing myself harm through stress or worry or fear or doubt or non-trust or resentment or anger I mean the list is long yeah as you've gone through that that list of things you've written down about um you know setting up boundaries and all all of those different things I want to touch on boundaries in a minute, but I want to hit this first. If you don't mind, I want to share an experience I had with a sponsee just in the last week who is doing his step nine right now and just finished up, you know, put together that list in step eight and becoming willing. And he is one who put his name at the top of that list. And and so that says something about him that he recognized at this point already. Hmm, what I've done has really harmed me. And in our call, he had written what he's doing is he's writing out his amends first and then he's going to go make them face to face wherever possible, you know, and reviewing those with me. And, and he had shared his with me. And this was something I had never done previously, not with myself or anybody else I've ever worked with. I said, Hey, are you where you're, where there's a mirror in the room you're at? And he goes, no, but I can go get one. Anyways, I said, I want you to look in that mirror and read that amends letter to yourself as you're doing this. And the, the result was powerful. It was powerful. And afterwards, he shared how the person he saw at the beginning of reading that letter, even though he'd already written it and read through it himself, when he looked at himself and told himself those things, the, the person he saw in the mirror looking back at him changed from the beginning of reading that letter to the end. It changed into a much better, happier, lighter, godly person than what he saw even before he started reading it. And it was powerful, man. It had a huge effect on me. And I think I'm going to start, I've got to do that myself now, I think, and then start recommending that to others that I work with. Have you ever done something like that? No, that is powerful. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I don't even know if I'm ready. 
Yeah. You know, I I would really have to really pray for I mean, I I want that. I want that freedom. I do. And like I said, I work through a lot of shame. Um, so I'm I feel thankful for that. And but it's a real I mean it's honestly it all of these things are the root of my disease. Mm. It's the why. It is the why. Mm. I mean, my character defects, of course, but, you know, all of these things justified my behavior. Yeah. Well, is there anything else there that you want to touch on before I jump over into boundaries? Because I want to talk a little bit about boundaries, and I know they don't have a ton to do with step eight, but I really want to hit on this right now. Okay. No, if I do, we can catch it up later. Yeah. So boundaries. And I think so many people that walk these paths that we walk are the same way. You know what? I can't have boundaries because that makes me a mean person. And if I'm a mean person, then I'm not going to be able to manipulate, you know, whatever, whatever it is that, that drives us to want to be accepted by others. How is that thinking of if I have boundaries, I'm going to be a mean person and others won't like me. How is that damaging? And then how do we go about establishing boundaries when we have had none for our whole lives? Uh, that's huge. You're right. Um, as a spouse, I would, I would have thought boundaries would have caused rejection. And my, my ultimate thing is being not enough. So, that would go into unlovable, unworthy, you know, expressing a need as a boundary would have, I mean, it's still scary to ask for something I need, even though it's a boundary. It really is. I mean, when it gets down to it, nearly everything can be some sort of a boundary. Like I said earlier, I mean, I, I had no boundaries, no boundaries. In fact, when I was at treatment, we did this boundary exercise where we stood, people stood in a line on one side and people faced us, let's say 10 feet away facing us. And we were supposed to walk towards each other. And when you felt like that person was crossing a boundary, then you, you needed to stop that person. Hmm. Well, I never got there. Hmm. That person was like touching me is how the lack of boundaries I came from. So to establish boundaries, I will tell you, I've been working on it for five years. Mm. And to establish them, I did a lot. I had to learn what they were first. So what are boundaries? Define that for me real quick. Well, my favorite boundary that makes sense to me is where, and I can use this as for my husband, like, you know, where does my stuff start and stop? And where does his stuff start and stop? Okay. And that could be, you know, verbally, any type of communication. Our communication boundaries were by far the worst. We didn't have any. Hmm. I mean, I could do a whole segment on communication because it was just, we just did not have any. And so, you know, reading about them and just, I mean, I probably spent two years of fighting them like i said earlier why do i need them mm. if he would just change <laughs> or she would just change well, i'm fine 
right? The whole lens is in the backwards story, you know, in the big book where my lenses were completely backwards. Establishing boundaries. You know, one of the things that we learned was to envision standing in a hula hoop. Whatever's inside this hula hoop is mine. And if I go outside that hula hoop, you know, let's just say physically, emotionally, spiritually, however I want to describe that, then I am stepping out of my boundaries. If I let someone in my hula hoop, it's the same, only it's the reverse because, you know, they're cross. I'm letting them. I'm letting them cross my boundary. And so after I became unthawed, I started feeling everything. Talk mm. about overwhelming. Mm. Oh my gosh. And terrifying because, you know, most of my life I knew negative things. I knew shame. I knew um, resentment. I knew anger. I knew frustration. I knew, I knew all of those. But as far as really being joyful or loving or passionate, you know, I thought I was those things, but it was just manipulation. Really. Mm. I mean, I might have had glimmers of those things. I mean, I know I really love my children. I was, yeah. I mean, I knew how to feel that sort of love. But anyway, when I started unthawing and feeling is when my boundaries really started kicking in because I started to become disturbed. And so that whole when I'm disturbed, it's me and from the big book. Hmm. That's when I really started making progress because I did not want to feel anything negative anymore because I experienced serenity. Hmm. And I experienced happy, joyous, and free. Now we're talking a long period of time. That that was a lot of work. I, I mean, everyday work to get to a place where Oh, I'm feeling angry right now. Why is that? You know, and what do I need to do to take action? Where's that coming from? And so, honestly, as I'm thinking about this, going back to my core emotions and my core roots of my, why I acted out, like we talked about earlier, would be the basis on where my boundaries need to start. Thank you for sharing that and those, I, I really appreciate your experience in that. That's something that um, is meaningful and timely in my own home right now with these boundaries. It's a topic that my wife and I and our children are talking a lot, a lot about a lot lately. So I appreciate your additional insights and I'll, I'll be sharing some of these things with, with them as, as we continue these conversations. So I have a, two or three more set questions. But before I get into those, do you have any other thoughts on step eight that you feel is really important to share with anybody out there that may be listening? Well, I read this and it said, you know, I didn't realize I'd harmed myself more than anyone else. I thought that that was very true. And something else I read was to make amends to myself. I had to change all my behaviors, taking the next right action allowing other people their anger without reacting to it. Mm. I mean, there's just so much, but I guess for me, I would say every step is 
critical in getting to that happy, joyous, and free place because it is, it's a real place. It really, really is. I have, I have a life now that I always wanted. I just didn't know how to get there. Mm. And to not be afraid, to pray for willingness. And I was just talking to my boys all the time, but even myself, especially when there's something I really don't want to do, I pray for willingness. And before I know it, the willingness comes and it's, it works every time. Hmm. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So Angie, um, if you wouldn't mind defining four terms for me as you understand them from your own experience, the four terms are abstinence, sobriety, recovery, and healing. Okay. So abstinence for me is completely aligned with our white book definition on page 191. Abstinence for me in my marriage looks like if I'm not in a good emotional place, meaning if I'm disturbed, then I cannot go to my husband, even though, and this just happened to me yesterday, even though I have five years almost of being sober in this program, if I have an emotional day, then I need to tell him to take care of myself that, look, I had a lot of emotions today. I cannot trust that I'm in a good, sound place. So I need to be abstinent, you know, sexually abstinent with you today. Mm-hmm. So emotionally abstinent and physically abstinent. So that's kind of what I look on abstinence. Okay. And then sobriety? Sobriety, you know, I still try and do a meeting a day, and I still learn a lot about sobriety. Sobriety to me is primarily a date in time when I committed to staying sober, when I committed to doing the next right thing, when I committed to surrender, when... And this is not all happening at one time. This is just the beginning. You know, staying in a sobriety day is when I started this process when I didn't have a clue what was ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a forced, uh, I mean, I wanted recovery, but I didn't know what that looked like. So you pick a date. This is the mm-hmm. date. This is the date of discovery. Okay. Okay. okay this is my sobriety date. <laughs> so. Sobriety to me is just a date. Okay. Now, recovery. Recovery. I've heard lots of things. I think one of my favorite things is recovery is regaining everything that I lost in my life that was not present because of my addiction. Recovery to me is willing to go to any lengths that it, that I can do to work my program, to be willing to uh, uncover the next thing that God wants me to work on, to help another person. I mean, that's a huge part of my recovery now. Recovery to me is, you know, at first I had to like learn what the steps were and then I was told I need to work the steps. I can't think what I want to say there, but eventually my last one is living the steps. Mm. 
So recovery to me is living in a way where the 12 steps are my life. I don't have to think about it anymore. Like, oh, I'm powerless over this. I might think that, but I don't have to go through and think why and all of that. Or definitely try to not get myself in a position where I'm going to have to make an amends to someone. I, and I love to own my own stuff. I'll just come out and own it just, you know, right away. If it comes out of my mouth and I know it, I need to take care of it right there. There's no pride. Hmm. So just living, living this program is my recovery. Awesome. And then the fourth uh, term is healing. I think healing for me has been the, one of the greatest gifts of this program. I'm one of those souls that needed more than program. I needed a great therapist. I needed treatment. I needed a daily program of 12 steps. I needed a sponsor. I mean, anything I could get my hands on to help me heal. But healing is the center of being able to even be happy, joyous, and free. If if I hang on to anything, the smallest thing, a splinter, it's like a splinter in and I'm out of my program, just like that. Hmm. So healing comes in many forms. And like I said, you know, from step eight, I'm still healing from um, thinking of the things that I did, you know, that I didn't do by my own choice. Hmm. But I have the awareness now, and I have, you know, knowledge is only knowledge, but I can take that knowledge and apply it I've healed. I mean, you know, seriously, I love the thing where it says, don't leave before the miracle happens. Because Mm. to me, the healing that I've experienced is a miracle. It Mm. is a God-given miracle because I was willing to do the work. Mm. That's awesome. All right. So there are going to be people listening to this. They may be in total denial about whatever um, addiction they have. They may uh, be on the fence going, hmm, maybe I do have a problem. Maybe I need to do something about it. What do I need to do about it? And there may be family members, you know, kind of like your husband, who are like, how do I find healing from my family members' choices and, and behaviors and, and, and illnesses? Take this opportunity to invite those people to step into a room for the first time and take that first step towards healing that you just just described there. I've said this before because I've talked to people that, especially females, that come in the room and they're like, oh, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is for me. You know, and, and I've even told this to my own children. All 12 steps are the same. There's usually just the beginning one that says, I'm powerless over point. Hmm. And as humans, I would encourage you to even think of the simplest things that you're powerless over. Is it your cell phone? Is it sugar? Is it staying up too late? Is it obsessing over someone's behavior? I mean, look at yourself. And then, you know, because there is no perfect. So what I'm trying to say is, that I don't care which room you step into. I fully believe that there is something that the 12 steps have to offer you in a life that you want. 
even if you are in a state where you really don't see what's harming you or what's holding you back or what's really ultimately keeping you from the grace of God. I talk about that with, like I was talking about it yesterday. If there's anything that I'm disturbed or distracted about keeps me from God's grace, period. And I'm back in self-will. Awesome. Angie, any other words of wisdom or advice that you have for me or anybody else out there? I guess the thing that I want to think about right now is just gratitude. I don't care how or what kind of situation a person's in, especially myself. My sponsor told me to go to gratitude no matter what the situation. And there's always something to be thankful for. Even if it's just the glass of ice water that's sitting here beside me. I mean, that seems ridiculous, but, you know, I can always find something to be thankful for and have real gratitude. And recovery has given me real gratitude. Before, you know, like at Thanksgiving, I'd go around the table and say, oh, I'm thankful for whatever. That was just superficial. That didn't mean anything. I'm thankful that it's Thanksgiving. You know, I'm thankful there's turkey on the table. (laughs) What I know now is I can experience and feel real gratitude. I'm thankful to know what it feels like to be thankful. Mm. And I would have never known that had I not been in despair and had lost. So no matter your situation, always look for gratitude. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope, Angie. This has been amazing. Thank you, Justin. There you have it. Step eight. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Can't you just feel the healing and hope and renewal of life and relationships there with Angie? Thanks again, Angie. That was fantastic. If you may be in a similar place as Angie and her family was before this, no matter what the cause of that place is, and if you have felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, please, I ask you, act on it. It can and will make all the difference in your life. If Angie's witness isn't enough to motivate and provide hope to the seemingly hopeless, I hate to think what will be enough. Now for the housekeeping part of this program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Also check us out at our website, www.jtlpod.com. And there you can learn the origins of this project and podcast. And I'd be honored if you went and checked out those things too. So you can drop us a note also about your own experiences, strength, and hope at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we have a few sponsors that I'm super grateful for, but I purposely did not put at the beginning of this episode or any of the other for this 12-week series. But they are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and RadfordPinesHomeDecor.com. Use promo code Justin with a life untold to save 10% on your order. 
and JTL Pod 5 at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. These conversations that I have recorded in this Journey in Recovery series have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning, and I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. Have a great week and press forward one day at a time. Thank mm-hmm. you.